Would you join me in prayer this morning? Lord God, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would knit together all our hearts and all our minds this morning so that we might receive direction from you. Amen. In the year 2017, as a response to what was happening at both the national and the state level, myself and several other graduate theology students at Baylor got together and wrote what we called a sanctuary petition. In the petition, we asked for Baylor to declare itself a sanctuary campus, meaning that Baylor would refuse to assist or cooperate with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, if it so happened that a Baylor student or professor or staff member was being targeted by our government for detention and possible deportation. After authoring the petition, we posted it online and began to gather signatures. It made some little and brief splashes in the news, and occasionally we, the authors, would be called upon to explain and defend the petition we had written. This explains how I ended up on a talk radio show having an encounter that remains with me. My interviewer was based in San Antonio, and he pressed me on whether the sanctuary petition was truly biblical. The interviewer asked me, doesn't Paul say in Romans 13 that Christians are supposed to obey the law and respect political leaders as they have been divinely appointed? I don't think I had a particularly good answer at the time to this question. But the question has stayed with me, and I think I finally know now what I should have said then. Doesn't it always happen that way? Yes. <laughs> I should have said, Christians have always been lawbreakers from the very first generation they were in existence. That first generation never offered the emperor the respect and devotion and worship that he demanded. They were always, in a sense, bad citizens and even criminals, Christians were. In context, then, Romans 13 must mean that Christians are, in general, supposed to respect laws and try to obey them, but that does not imply that Christians should follow laws that go contrary to their faith. In fact, it seems Christians have always broken laws they have considered incompatible with their beliefs. From the start, they said, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And in saying that, they broke the law and were arrested and sometimes executed as a consequence. In fact, rather than Christians having always been loyal, patriotic, law-abiding citizens of the nations in which they found themselves, all our early heroes of the faith are criminals. Peter was a criminal, John was a criminal, Jesus was a criminal, and Paul, who wrote the letter we read from this morning, Paul was a criminal too. Second Timothy is one of Paul's prison letters. He wrote others, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, are all letters that Paul wrote from prison. In Second Timothy, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, to the point of being chained as a criminal. Paul openly speaks here of his criminal status. It is not we who are giving him that title. He gives it to himself. 
Paul has been arrested as someone who threatened the sovereignty of empire, someone who dared to say that Caesar was not the highest and truest lord. And in addition, Paul threatened the religious status quo of his day, even inciting not just one, but two riots. If there were ever a troublemaker, it's Paul, and with that in mind, it makes complete sense that the Romans viewed him as a criminal. By being thrown into jail, Paul joins good company. I'm thinking of those heroes of the faith already mentioned, John, Peter, and Jesus himself. Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher theologian who was the subject of my doctoral research, takes this fact of early Christian criminality and fashions it into a pointed challenge to the Christianity of his day. He tells his readers, actually, if you are not considered a criminal by your society, that places your status as a Christian, as a follower of the jailed and executed Christ, in serious doubt. Kierkegaard is saying that if you are not currently in jail, you should question whether you are living a truly Christian life. <laughs> he was wont to put things in extremes. With that question, Kierkegaard is doing something interesting, I think, with shame. He is reversing its location. Instead of shame being placed on those in prison, Kierkegaard is placing shame on those outside of prison. We are the ones, we who are in this church today and not in a prison, who should feel a sort of shame, a shame connected to the fact that our heroes of the faith, those we hold up as the best Christians and the patterns we try to imitate, they were imprisoned while we remain free. And Paul lived in a culture where prison was associated with shame and dishonor. In fact, he indicates in 2 Thessalonians that some of his close associates have abandoned him because they were ashamed of his status as prisoner. Yet in response, he does not try to hide the fact of his imprisonment when he is writing to Timothy. Rather, he seems proud of his status as a criminal. He speaks openly about his chains. He is proud because he knows it is the gospel that has made him an outlaw. Kierkegaard wanted his audience to feel shame that they were not imprisoned as criminals. Paul, on the other hand, seems to want to get rid of shame altogether. He wanted his readers to live lives of freedom, to serve the gospel that preaches good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and liberation to the oppressed, and to serve this message without worrying about the potential shame that could come from getting into trouble for it with the authorities, or even being arrested and jailed as a criminal because of the gospel message, which is often perceived as threatening. There are those who yet today live lives in accordance with Paul's example that he's setting for us in 2 Timothy, who live free from worries about what society thinks of them. These are people who are not ashamed of the gospel and who are not afraid to go to prison for it if that ends up being something that's required of them. Two people in particular come to mind for me. The first is Reverend Dr. William J. Barber. Although he's been known for a long time in North Carolina as a leader within the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, my church, Reverend Barber first came to national attention as a leader of the Moral Monday movement. Y'all heard of this? Some of you have. 
Moral Monday movement. <laughs> the Moral Monday movement. It began in 2013 and involved increasingly large groups marching and gathering around the North Carolina State Legislative Building in downtown Raleigh, protesting voter suppression, refusal of national Medicaid funds, the stripping of important environmental regulations, and other issues that disproportionately affect the poor. Whenever there was a gathering to protest what was going on in North Carolina, Reverend Barber was there, lifting his voice to repeat the prophet's words about doing justice and walking humbly. Along with thousands of other Moral Monday protesters, Reverend Barber has been arrested as a result of his efforts to hold the authorities to account. In fact, he has been arrested many, many times, at least 15 times Reverend Barber has been arrested, though I don't know for sure how many times, and probably at this point he doesn't know either. Most famously, or perhaps infamously, Reverend Barber was in the process of being arrested when it was being announced that he had won a MacArthur Fellowship, often called the Genius Grant. And I believe he is the only person to hold that dubious honor of those two things happening at the same time. Throughout all this, Reverend Barber refuses to be ashamed, and there are people who are trying to shame him. Recently, Barber was convicted on charges of trespassing because of his refusal in 2017 to leave the legislative halls of the Raleigh State House. During the trial, the prosecuting attorney pressed him on the volume of his voice, trying to get him to admit that he was yelling and thus intentionally interrupting the legislative process. Rather than go along with the attorney's ploy, Barber responded that he was using his preaching voice. He then went on to kindly inform the attorney that in the African-American preaching tradition, there are ebbs and flows in the use of one's voice, and that he would not be apologizing for the particular ebbs and flows that he had used that day. The attorney was trying to shame him by painting him as an angry black man yelling. Barber refused this caricature. He was a preacher preaching on behalf of the excluded because God had asked him to do so, and he was not going to be ashamed of the gospel. As he said at the first Moral Monday protest of 2014, after a year of standing up, tell us to go home all you want, but we will never, never, never stand down. There is a second person whose witness has also been haunting me ever since I first read about it. This is a, a native Texan. Her name is Teresa L. Todd, and her story comes from earlier this year in February. Todd is the city attorney for Marfa, Texas, and the Jeff Davis County attorney, and she was arrested for stopping to check on and give a ride to three young siblings, ages 22, 20, and 18, 22, 20, and 18, who happened to be migrants from El Salvador. And she saw them and picked them up as she was driving home one night on a West Texas highway road. That's what she was arrested for. Todd is the mother of two children, a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old, and when she saw the siblings, she immediately thought of her own kids. She thought, I can't just drive away and leave children on the side of the road. So she stopped and helped. 
Now, Todd was surprised by the actions of law enforcement. She said in an interview, the whole thing was really, really very surreal. They seemed to think there was something very nefarious going on. When I literally got flagged down on the side of the road and tried to be a good Samaritan. Perhaps a lesson we should take from Todd's story is not to be surprised that Christian action has been criminalized. We shouldn't be surprised, especially as Todd is not alone. She joins those from the Arizona-based group No More Deaths, for example, some of whose members have received criminal convictions for leaving water and canned food for migrants making the difficult borderland journey. We shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't be surprised that William Barber was arrested, and we shouldn't be surprised when he is arrested again. We shouldn't be surprised because this pattern is as old as St. Paul. We shouldn't be surprised, but we shouldn't be afraid either. There is no shame in being a prisoner for the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.7 reads, For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So I ask us today, do we have a spirit of cowardice or a spirit of courage? Do we have a spirit of fear or are we living lives liberated and freed from worry? Will we be defeated by shame or will we be proven more than conquerors? I think of these questions as I think of the situation of Teresa Todd her, found herself in. And I ask myself, what will I do when I see children by the side of the road? Will I pull over and help? Or will I be afraid? What will I do? What will you do? May God free us this day of cowardice and shame and fill us with courage, power, love, and self-discipline. Amen.